Hey, Dennis. Hey, Mark. You a dummy? Yeah, probably. Probably you are. Are you a puppet kind of dummy? No. Like one of those, like, somebody else is speaking out of your mouth? Oh, God, like, no, never. I'm just a regular stupid dummy. Who do you speak for? Me and myself and I. And it's just you speaking. Right. Right. Same so with you, right? For both of us. Right. We don't speak on behalf of others. No. They're Unless not they telling pay us, us what to huge say. Huge sums of money for that particular purpose. Sure. But right now we're not. We're, we're not. Just, we're just and, like two guys talking. And we're not giving legal advice. Ever. Well, again, unless you pay us large sums of money, but certainly not on this podcast. Hostile work environment. Exactly. Hey, inappropriate workplace topic. Hostile work environment. Shut up. I'm the human resources director. Little Miss Hostile Work Environment. Hi, everyone. Hello and welcome to the Hostile Work Environment. I'm Dennis. And I'm Mark. And we are recording this live at the Pacific Northwest Enterprise Risk Forum in Seattle. The PNRF. Yes. So that is what you call it, right? Because we've... What's that? Earth. Earth. Not the PNRF. It's a silent P, maybe just NERF. But, okay. Like, you don't say pneumatic, it's just... But, Okay. Yeah, but no. then I think of Nerf football. Yeah. Well, okay. It's evocative. Anyway. <laughs> so uh, this is the second time we've done this live. So we're still working out the kinks about how that works exactly. And it's the first time in front of a sober audience. That is true. That is us. true. Actually, it was it was not entirely sober the last time we did this. No, so. it, it was an open bar. And that worked out really well for us. So I don't know if any of you have listened. Can I, can I get a show of hands? Has anybody actually listened to us before? One. One. Yay. Wow. Oh, oh. Okay. All right. So two. not surprising because our, our normal audience is an HR audience, not a risk audience specifically. And so for, for I was going to say for those of you who listen, but for those who are listening on the podcast, we're going to change up our format a bit today. Normally what we do is we find some employment, labor and employment case or news story that just has off the wall facts. And then what we do is we kind of rip into those facts, talk about them, and then maybe we talk about the law a little bit and about maybe. what lessons learned. And, and really what we try to do is let the HR community out there know that they're not alone. So when they have crazy stuff happen at work, we try to let them know that they're not alone because all these big companies are also having these problems. Today we're going to change that format a bit, more for a risk audience. And we're going to highlight the top five areas uh, that we think are right for HR risk organizationally. And we're going to kind of go through and tell a couple of shorter stories about each one of those uh, as yeah. we go through. And, you know, it's uh, a little bit harder, but if you have questions, please feel free to, to, to pipe up and There's ask your question. There's this lonely microphone up there that I assume is for audience questions. Yes. So please feel free to interrupt us uh, and do that. We'll, I, it may or may not show up on the podcast. We might do a little bit of repeating back uh, just to make sure that our recording yeah. microphones actually pick it up. Uh, so do you want to talk about our session objectives and takeaways? Yeah, so our objective is that you subscribe and download our podcast. <laughs> and after you've done that, then maybe we'll identify some common employment law risks and learn a bit on how you can best mitigate those. So a couple of questions, kind of show of hands before we start. Um, or, or this is kind of an audio format, Mark. I think show of hands doesn't really translate we'll, well we'll, to a podcast. We'll Could discuss you scream what, real loud? We'll discuss the hands. Or okay. Whatever you want. 
I have a uh, scream real loud. <laughs> uh, am we correct in assuming everybody in here is, is, is everybody here a Washington employer? Okay. Are there any Oregon employers? We're both from Portland, so. We're lonely. We're one. lonely. All right. We might talk a little bit about Oregon. Uh, there's only one of us here who's actually admitted to practice in Washington. It's not me. Um, but uh, these are general application employment law issues that we're generally totally. going to be talking about. So um, I also just want to get a sense from the audience. Uh, uh, is everybody here in charge of risk management? I make that assumption. Who also has HR as a function that you're related to, overseeing? Or are is this kind of new area and just in your risk area, like wanting to know what are some of the employment risks that are out there? I'm seeing some head nods on that. Okay, so I think that this is tailored for that audience. Uh, we're going to we'll start. Find out. Yeah. All right. So, the risky world of employment. I'm not sure what that slide was supposed to be there for. Me neither. Okay. I, I All put right. it together. Though. So we're going to start in a <laughs> in a countdown format here. Yeah. Uh, and we'll start with employment law risk number five, which is wage and hour. And right. Dennis is going to talk a little bit about that. Wage and hour is one of the riskiest areas in employment law because it lends itself really well to this thing that lawyers either love or hate, and it's called the class action lawsuit. Class actions are really expensive. We're talking millions of dollars. And lawyers get to buy new boats. That's why some of us yeah. love class action litigation. Right. It's very lucrative for lawyers. It's not necessarily lucrative for the members of the class. It's really no. about the lawyers. No, you'll... Fight this, spend millions of dollars, and then class members get this little envelope in the mail that they probably throw away that says you may be entitled to lucrative remuneration in the form of a first-class postage stamp. Yeah, but I've, got, I've gotten them in the mail. It will cost yeah. your organization about a bazillion dollars. And wage an hour is really premised on this thing called the Fair Labor Standards Act. It's a federal law that governs things like minimum wage and overtime and the fact that if somebody works for you more than 40 hours in a week and they're not subject to one of the exemptions, then you have to pay them time and a half overtime. That's true. You've heard of it? I've heard of it. Okay. So to illustrate this, I thought I would talk about a couple of cases. And one of them comes from the city of Chicago. That's Illinois. Well, you, you never know when there's like, you know, Chicago, Oklahoma or something crazy like that. But this comes out of the Chicago Police Department's Bureau of Organized Crime. That's interesting. Yeah, which, you know. It's not our normal defendant. They still have in 2017 because Chicago, they have a lot of that organized crime stuff. But here's what, here's what happened. The Chicago Bureau of Organized Crime gives all of its employees a BlackBerry, or at least they did back in, you know, 2013. When oh, okay. Case I was going to say that. Remember the BlackBerry? <laughs> yeah. It's what we all had before iPhones and, you know, Google. They were, and they were life-changing at the time. Oh, we yeah. thought we were the coolest thing. Did you have the little holster? Oh, yeah. And you yeah. right on the right. BlackBerry out of your holster and everybody, ooh, he's, watch out, he's got a BlackBerry. And there were BlackBerries, there were, and there were blue-colored BlackBerries that we called blueberries. They were so cool. Yeah. I had one of yeah. the purple blueberry yeah. things. Yeah. Anyway, all these cops have these, these BlackBerry things. And they would go home after clocking out. But they would get on their BlackBerry and do a bunch of work. They'd send messages to one another. They'd be on their little device doing things. That, that could be an issue. 
Well, they didn't clock in every time they would check an email. And these were hourly. Em- these were hourly, these were hourly employees. employees. Can you, can you talk a little bit about the difference between an hourly and a not hourly employee? Well, it depends on. Hourly and not hourly is really how you pay somebody. But the legal standard is whether somebody is exempt from the Fair Labor Standards Act or not. And certain usually highly compensated, higher ranking folks, probably most of us in this room, frankly, are allowed to be exempt from the Fair Labor Standards Act. That's why we can work more than 40 hours in a week and we don't get overtime for it. Right. But your rank-and-file employees who don't meet one of the exceptions that we'll talk about in just a second, they have to be paid by the hour, and they have to be paid overtime in case they work more than 40 hours a week. And this group of employees fell into that classification. But they were given Blackberries by their employer, and they'd go home and they'd work off the clock on their Blackberry. And can well, you, before we move on, can you, yeah. what, there's three categories of folks that are exempt from the law. And I just think it might be good to, to go into that real quickly. Okay. Do, you, do you know what they are? Um, there's executives. Executives. There's learned professionals. That's true. And janitorial staff. Administrators. Administrators. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I knew there was somebody out <laughs> This there. is what we do to each other sometimes. Like we don't plan that much in advance. And so then in we'll fact, quiz we each other and try to trip advance, each other, right. try to trip each other up. It's, it's part of our <clears throat> charm. Yeah. Um, so back to Chicago. Yeah. These folks got lawyers who ended up suing the Chicago Police Department saying, hey, wait a minute. We're all working off the clock. We're due overtime for all this time that we spent on our Blackberries. Makes sense. Sounds legit, right? Yeah. Well, under the Fair Labor Standards Act, it only applies to work that the employer knows or had reason to know about. So if the employer doesn't know, and nor should they know that you were communicating with a coworker on your BlackBerry outside of working hours, you actually don't have to pay them for that work. Right. But once you find out, or you should have known, you're on the hook. Right. Are they only communicating with coworkers? Are they also communicating with bosses and other exempt individuals? The court said, this is, you know, you probably should have known about this, but it's minimal stuff and we're not going to make you pay. This is not always the outcome. A lot of these cases turn the other way where people are expected to. Well, I put mine over there so it wouldn't ring, but you're, you're expected to take your little phone or device with you wherever you go. And if your boss wants you, they send you a text message. And guess what? You better answer. Well, the courts are more and more saying you need to pay people for the time it took to answer the boss's message. Unless it's truly de minimis, getting into a little bit of Latin there, yeah, right? Like, Unless it's truly hey, just incidental, right? Can you come in? I just want you to check your email just to know. It's just see if I emailed you to maybe come in or, or answer something in, in, in a two-second thing. But like anything more than that is going to be considered work, and you got to pay people for that. Yeah. Now, when was the Fair Labor Standards Act created? Do you know that? Way back during the Depression. It was yeah. the 1930s. And did they have Blackberries back then? No, they had those really big cell phones that right. had a briefcase. Yeah. No, I mean, right, like the law was written at a time when there wasn't the ability to work from home in the way that there is today. It was mostly drafted for manufacturing and blue collar kinds of jobs that didn't have the ability to reach out and communicate. And so the law was not created in a way to anticipate this problem, but now it's being interpreted by the letter of the law, as it should be, right, right, to apply to work that's happening when you're not actually physically at work. 
And this is causing a lot of headaches. Yep. And so it's something for you all, you know, in your risk management roles to be thinking about, you know, how are folks who are, are not exempt communicating outside of work? Right. But there's a solution and it's brilliant. And we're going to talk about that really briefly. So Mark mentioned earlier, there's three categories of employees who are exempt from overtime laws if you pay them on a salary basis. If you pay somebody by the hour, you're going to have to pay them overtime if they work more than 40. But if they're salaried, no. And only if they meet one of the three exemptions, executive, administrative, and, and professional. So really brilliant employers have decided, I know, we'll make everybody an executive. Brilliant. Brilliant scheme. And that's what Taco Bell's been trying to do for like the last 15 years. And if you're bored one day, just Google Taco Bell FLSA exempt lawsuit and Google will break because yeah. th they don't learn. So anybody here work for Taco Bell? <laughs> okay, thank God. So years ago, this one came out of Portland, Oregon. I was a lawyer. I was young. I was paying attention to this stuff. Taco Bell had this bright idea. We want to make all these 17-year-olds work 60 hours a week, but we don't want to pay them time and a half overtime. I know. We'll make them all executives. So Billy over here is the special executive of the deep fryer. <laughs> Jane over there is vice president of the special sauce, so on and so forth. And guess what? They got sued because those people didn't actually meet the very stringent test for being an executive. It's more than giving Billy a title. And you can't walk into a Taco Bell and think that everybody that you see there is a vice president or a C-suite level person. No, you're wrapping a burrito. That is not an executive function. The test comes down to not the title, but to the job, job duties. duties. We don't and have time to get into those duties now. But I thought Taco Bell would have learned their lesson. They've been getting their bell rung. <laughs> oh, man, really? For years. I didn't really? even plan like, that That one. was bad for you. That, even for me. This is like the dad joke podcast. Yeah. So we just found out that they're still at it. They're classifying people as <clears throat> assistant managers and not paying them a wage, paying them a salary and making them work 60 hours a week. And their assistant managerial duties include things like bussing tables, cleaning, checking inventory, managing the cash registers and cooking food. Sounds very highly executive to me, Mark. Totally. I agree. So be careful. Yeah. And that's risk number five. All right. We're on to number four, labor, labor issues. So there's only one of us who's a Washington lawyer. There's also only really one of us who's a labor lawyer. Yeah. I'm just here to be pretty, mostly. Mark's going to get his turn real soon. So labor law. Anybody in the room have a labor union at your employer? Scream real loud. Yeah. We got a handful of woos. We got so a woo. A that it wasn't very loud, though. When we talk about labor law, we're talking about labor unions. And there's another federal law that governs all of this. It's called the National Labor Relations Act. Just like the FLSA, it dates all the way back to the Depression. It comes out of the good old days when labor relations were conducted by using a two-by-four with a nail in it. And that's how labor relations were done in places like a Pennsylvania coal mine. Again, things have changed, but the law has not. And the labor laws that we face really are not necessarily adapted to a modern workplace. 
And sometimes people really get surprised by this. The other thing that surprises everybody is that the National Labor Relations Act has certain provisions that apply to everybody, whether you have a union or not. One of the things the NLRA does is it gives employees the right to engage in what's called protected and concerted activity. That's when two or more employees get together to try to either one, organize a labor union, or two, redress some sort of wrong they believe is being conducted by the employer. Have any of you had a situation, uh, not saying where you currently work, but where you heard or saw that employees were being told that they're not allowed to talk to each other about their wages? I'm seeing some head nods, right? Yeah. Super illegal. Super not okay. Yeah. All right. And so that's one of those things that non-labor shops, right, non-labor employers don't necessarily realize it's still a problem, even though you don't have a union because the law still applies to you. Right. Right. And the reason for that is the law still applies to you because you have to allow for your employees to have the conversations that might lead them to form a union. And that's what's protected. Yeah. Now, the other problem with applying a almost century-old labor law to the modern workforce is that our behavioral standards have really changed since the days of the Depression. Also keep in mind that while the labor laws apply to practically all private employers, they really have developed in places like coal mines and shipyards, where somewhat rough conduct and rough language is kind of the, the norm and to be expected. But that doesn't always translate over into the modern workplace. And I have an example for you. And we're going to follow good place rules here. Right. So when you go and listen to our podcast, we're employment lawyers and employment law is a really messy subject. And sometimes we have to talk about things where we have to put on a disclaimer that says, you know, don't listen to this with your kids in the car. But you any, know, we, any other big fans of The Good Place, the TV show? Yeah, I see a couple of okay. hands. All right. You'll so, get this. All right. So we're trying to make Highly this a, at least a PG rated podcast and presentation today. So I can't use the language that is used in National Labor Relations Board cases. But I'm going to speak about them in The Good Place way where they replace certain words. The Good Place is set in the afterlife. And in the afterlife, you can't swear. So when you try to use a swear word, you're actually forced to use a different word, like bullshirt, right? Yeah, or mother forker. Or, right. So we, we're going to replace yeah. a certain four-letter euphemism with the word fork. Here's what happened. There's a place called Pier 60 in New York. They do catering. They cater events. They provide wait, wait staff and do all this stuff. And their wait staff got angry at them and decided they were going to try and form a union, particularly because a certain supervisor named Bob was unpleasant to work with. Like super unpleasant. Yeah. Yeah. And they, the employees got on Facebook to take their campaign to the social media. The day before an election, an employee who had had a particularly rough interaction with Bob decided to vent his frustrations. And on Facebook, he wrote the following. Bob is such a, all caps, nasty mother forker. Don't know how to talk to people, eight exclamation points. Fork his mother and his entire forking family, five exclamation points. What a loser. And then he signs it, 
vote yes for the union. Totally can fire him, right? I mean, you can't do that to your boss, right? You can't call your boss a nasty mother forker on Facebook. Not okay, except. Unless you put vote yes for the union after it. Right. <laughs> because that went to the National Labor Relations Board. And they said, look, he was engaging in his legally protected right to redress a grievance with his fellow worker. And while he did it in language that you or I might not find appropriate, he was merely trying to voice his opinion and rally his coworkers to support the union cause. So he has every right in the world to call Bob a nasty mother forker, and you just best get over it. And they reversed his termination and ordered him to be reinstated. Was it a close call, though? That was actually a close call. There's another case out there where an employee was engaged in a discussion with management and got really heated in a conversation about his working conditions and exclaimed, fork you and fork this job at work. He got fired, but in that case, the National Labor Relations Board totally upheld okay. the termination. Why? Turns out that at his employer, and it's a place called Harbor Rail Services, they don't have a history of letting people swear like sailors. And this was really out of the norm. But when they went back to Pier 60, they heard testimony from all of um, this lovely man's co-workers that said, no, we talk like that around work all the time. That's just the lingua franca. You said lingua franca. I'm sort of, <laughs> you know, summarizing. But yeah. in any event... The workplace culture that you allow or perpetuate will be taken into consideration. The main point here, though, is that labor law is a massive landmine for the unaware. Because who would think that somebody can get away with calling their employer the nasty mother forker on Facebook and keep their job? But that happens a lot. So if you see stuff like this where people are engaging with their coworkers to complain about working conditions, no matter how profane they may be, you really need to seek legal counsel before you step into it and do something about it. Fair enough. Should we move that on? That was labor law. All right. Over to you, Mark. What are you going to tell us about? We're going to talk about pay equity. Has uh, anybody here been seeing a lot in the news show of hands uh, about pay equity laws and changes that are happening in that world? Seeing, seeing some nods several hands. and some hat hands. No whoops this time, but <laughs> that's that's probably fair enough. All right, I'm going to talk a little bit about this because both Oregon, where we are, and Washington have both passed pay equity laws recently. And the Ninth Circuit, which is the federal circuit that we are all in, which is basically the whole Western U.S., also has some case law on this issue now, too. So I'm going to tell a little story, and it's a story about Eileen. Eileen uh, was a math consultant, or is a math consultant, in Fresno, California. Uh, and she was hired by Fresno County in 2009 uh, to be a math consultant for the school district. Uh, they used a standard pay schedule, uh, which included 10 different salary levels for math consultants, right? We, we all have pay scales, right? And you, you, know, you hire somebody and you look to see where do you fall on that scale. So they did that. They did their analysis. And for them to calculate that pay level, the school district took their most recent salary, bumped it by 5%, and placed the new hire at the corresponding pay level within the salary schedule. Right. Sounds good. You got a 5% raise. Right. And, and I'll admit, you know, 
years ago, I did, I did the same thing. When I hired people, I'd find out what they were making. I'd give them a really healthy bump, right? It still might not be as much as I was paying somebody else doing the same work, right? Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be doing that because of a gender issue, I, right? I, it could be anybody. But what's the problem there, Dennis? Well, what if they had been discriminated against in the past by right? some less scrupulous employer? Right. We know, statistically speaking, that women are what are earning 80%, 80% of what men do on average. At best. I think Oregon is actually even lower than that. Yeah, um, and so... The Mississippi of the West. Right. I mean, so, so engaging in this kind of uh, analysis can perpetuate that discrimination, even though you don't intend it to. All right. So that's going to be the issue here. So... Before uh, taking the job in Fresno, Eileen was earning $50,630 a year as a middle school math teacher in Arizona. So even with a 5% bump, it placed her at the bottom of Fresno County's pay scale. Um, She brought a claim. Imagine that. Right? So lawyers representing the school district conceded that they paid her less than male employees for doing the same work. But they argued that the county did not violate the Equal Pay Act because the basis for the pay disparity, the county's salary schedule, was a factor other than sex, right? Which is what's protected under the Equal Pay Act, right? That exempted the county from liability. Yeah. What do you think? Is that a good argument? Sure used to be. It we used to be. We use that all the time. Yeah, your salary history has nothing to do with your with your sex, so we can take that into consideration all we want, just like we do skills, abilities, education, yada, yada. So this case took a little while to get here, right? So she's hired in 2009. The opinion just came out earlier this year, Wheels of Justice. Um, and it went through all the different uh, appellate uh, courts. So the district court ruled in Eileen's favor. Then a panel of the Ninth Circuit, three judges, changed that said no way and then an 11 judge panel of the ninth circuit which is what we call on banc um, more which latin. Is, yeah more all of latin them together of. um or in the ninth circuit's case because the ninth circuit's so big a significant percentage of the ninth circuit yeah. sat and heard this and they changed it back again right and what they said is that employers can't use a woman's salary history to rationalize paying her less than a man doing the same job can they use a man's his salary history well the article is written in in that way. i don't think you can use anybody don't so use anybody's i wouldn't salary i wouldn't history. recommend doing that for you right so in, in any event that is now law in the ninth circuit that making these inquiries and i just lost the powerpoint which is what i was worried about Uh-oh. oh it's back oh, it came back did it come back yeah it's okay. blinking but it's back right. it's a really important powerpoint it, it really, we're, we're you know, really we, using it a lot. We're but. an auditory medium, so you know we really didn't invest a lot in this PowerPoint. Yeah, and so we if were told that away, we couldn't we're, use we're copyrighted images, so I had to go like you know back to the 1600s to pull stuff from the Illustrated Shakespeare. It works. It works. Um, so just a little bit more on pay equity, um, Washington State. So Oregon passed a law that took effect earlier. Uh, some parts of it took effect January 1 of, uh, or no, I think it was middle of 17 and the rest of it takes effect at the beginning of 19. But a a specific portion of that was saying by statute in Oregon, you can't check on prior salary history in your hiring. You you have to fit somebody into your pay scale based on their experience, right? Their education and all of those kinds of factors, not what they had previously made. Washington passed a law this year also. Uh, And let me just give a little bit of a summary about it. Um, 
under the law, it's the Equal Pay Opportunity Act in Washington, which took a, uh, took effect. I think took a, uh, it was passed back in June. Took a, I'm not sure what the effective date is. Consider it all in effect anyway, right? Employers are legally required to receive equal pay and career. Sorry, employees legally required to receive equal pay and career advancement opportunities regardless of gender. Um, the law has several elements here that require employer, employers to provide equal compensation to similarly employed workers along uh, with equal opportunities for career advancement regardless of gen- uh, gender. Similarly employed means workers for the same employer doing the same work under similar conditions with similar skills, effort, and responsibility. Right, okay. which is very similar to the Oregon law and very similar to what the court is saying in this Ninth Circuit case. There's also one other interesting point in the Washington law, which ties back to what Dennis was just talking about a minute ago on labor law, which I was surprised you, to see when I looked at this. You can call people nasty motherforker? Uh, it doesn't get into that. Um, but well, along with equal pay and opportunity, the new law here states that employers cannot stop workers from disclosing their wages to others. Uh-huh. or require workers to sign non-disclosure agreements about their wages. So that's already protected by the Na- National Labor Relations Act, but this codifies it into Washington law as well. I, w- I thought that was very interesting. And what it does is if your rights under Washington law are violated, you have a much better lawsuit than going to the National Labor Relations Board, which will raise hell on your behalf but won't give you any money. Right. In Washington, you can get money. So Yeah. That is pay equity. All right. Yay. (laughs) All right. Employment law risk number two. Yep. Interviewing and recruiting. All right. We're going to start off with some basic stuff here. All right. I'm going to ask for a volunteer here. I know you guys seem pretty shy. Who can tell me what some protected classes are under the law when it comes to employment law? Just shout them out. Age over 40. Same thing. Veterans. Veteran good one. status. Thank you. Gender. Gender. What else? Disability. Disability. Religion. Hallelujah. Uh, Children. Sexual orientation in some states. Children depends on some states. Your health history, your genetic history mm-hmm. is one. Anything else? I don't think I heard race. Race, Did national race? origin. Race and national origin. Age, okay. race, sex tend to be the biggies. All right. Dennis. Yes. What do those protected classes apply to? Like when we talk about protected classes, what does that mean? In the broad brush sense, they apply to the terms and conditions of employment. But that includes hiring, firing, promotion, demotion, um, how many hours somebody is offered. Right. Who, who's heard, show of hands, what at-will employment is? Who, who's heard of the term at-will, right? Most Almost of everybody. Almost everybody, right? You can hire somebody, you can fire them, they can quit for any reason. Right, and that's pretty much the law in every state unless somebody's hired with an employment Except contract Montana. that says otherwise. Is Montana the one that Montana's that okay. the one. I knew it was like 49. Yeah. I didn't know which one was the, the one. All right, so, but at-will employment is, is the rule in Washington, right? And you can hire, fire, you can do any of those things for any reason that you want, so long as it's not an illegal reason. Right. And the illegal reasons, of which there are many, right, are what the protected classes are about, right? So those are not reasons that you can make those decisions for. So we wanted to do that little high-level 
overview about that before we start talking about one specific part of it, which is interviewing and recruiting. Because you hear about people being fired all the time, but what about hiring? And we see a lot of circumstances where recruiters or hiring uh, partners or managers Mm -hmm. are making some pretty bad mistakes when they do it. And it's just something for you all to keep an eye on if you if you have any relationship or oversight with your recruiting or hiring function. And I'm going to go through three really quick examples that cover different protected classes and how this has come up in those circumstances. All right. We're going to start with one about race. Okay. And we have a, a claim here out of Minnesota. Uh, where uh, the EEOC brought a claim um, against one of the largest aerospace and defense manufacturers in the country, and they paid a $100,000 settlement on a race discrimination lawsuit that the EEOC brought on an employee's behalf. And according to the lawsuit, the company refused to hire an African-American woman for a technical support job because of her race. The alleged victim was advised by a recruiter representing the company to take out her braids to appear more professional after the first interview. She complied. She was interviewed several times for the job, right? But then, uh, and she was told by the recruiter that the company wanted to hire her, right? But by the time she got back in to meet with the company's IT director for another interview as part of the process, she had put her braids back in. The following day, she's informed she's not getting the job, and they hired a white male for the job instead, after they'd already told her they're going to fire her. Who presumably did not have his hair in braids? Presumably. Right. And so the question there, right, the the employer said, well, we didn't not hire her because of the color of her skin. Right. They said it was I'm actually not sure what they said, because it still doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. But um, in this case, the way that she wore her hair was a cultural association, though. So even though they say it's not because of your skin color, there's a cultural association with the way she she wore her hair. That's a form of race discrimination that still violates federal employment law. Interesting. Yeah. So let's move on to age. This Some of these you're going to hear and you're just going to laugh and you're like, who would do that? People do it. People do right? it. And you don't if know they everybody. If right? like, we wouldn't know about it. Right. And even people at really big companies do it. And that's why you have HR and risk to be there. But you can't do anything about it unless you know about it. Right. And so part of what we're trying to educate you about is to the extent that it touches on your job responsibilities, ask a few questions. Okay. Here we have uh, Ruby Tuesday, the restaurant. Okay. They agreed to a $45,000 settlement on an age discrimination lawsuit uh, in May of last year. The suit asserted that they broke the law by refusing to hire uh, an applicant because of his age. The alleged victim for the position of a general manager, and this was in Florida. Half of our cases of our come, cases from, come Florida. from Florida, right? Like hashtag Florida man does something, right? Yeah. Um, so, according to the to the claim, uh, the company overlooked this man's twenty years of experience in the food and beverage industry and in not hiring him. And in and of itself, right? You might have somebody that you think is a better fit or a better hire than him, but they sure. did something really stupid along the way. Imagine. They told him that they didn't hire him because they were looking for a candidate who could maximize longevity. Right? The implication being you're old and you won't stick around. Yeah. Now, is that a legitimate thing for an employer to think about is that, you know, we're going to spend a whole bunch of money recruiting people and then we find somebody, we're going to spend a whole bunch of money enticing them to move to Florida and then we're going to spend a whole bunch more money training them. 
do they have a legitimate interest in how long that employee is going to stick around? This is what I would call a yes, but. Okay. Yes. But. But, no. Right? I mean, <laughs> like, you want to, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, like, yes, there's a legitimate interest there, but yeah. you've got to be careful about how you frame it, right? You've got to worry about what documentation you have and how it's, right, what's, what's coded behind the language. Yeah. And if that right? is your concern, there's an easy way to address it. You ask everybody who comes through your door and applies for that job, what are your long-range plans and how long do you intend to stay here at Ruby Tuesday? Now, if you ask the 20-year-old that and the 60-year-old that, and they both tell you, I got a 20-year runway, then you can go, oh, right. okay. If the 60-year-old says, you know, I got two years left in me, and then I'm, you know, I'm moving down to Florida to retire. And the 20-year-old says, you know, I'm on a stay at Ruby Tuesday until I retire at age 65. Then you can compare maybe the runway. Yeah, it's still touchy. Without it's still touchy. At the age. It's still a little iffy, right. but it's a lot but that more gets you a lot closer than saying like, no, geezer, you're out of here. All right. Case number three. Okay. We've got a sex discrimination case. Uh, this is Special Education Associates, Inc., a New York-based educational services company. Uh, they paid $57,000 in lost wages and damages to resolve a sex dis discrimination claim filed by the EEOC. And according to the complaint, the company CEO offered the applicant a job at the company, and then he asked her out on a date to party with him. Because that sounds like what you do in the recruiting process. You know, we, right. you, know you, you seem to be qualified. You have quite a resume. But until we really test your partying skills, I, I don't know that we can give you an offer. Wouldn't that be dependent on the job? <laughs> Is that a not BFOQ? Gonna I'm not going to touch that one. Right, though it's certain jobs. The, the, we like, said PG. It's a, all right. Anyway, I, it didn't even have to, like, if you're a par hiring a party planner. Okay, fine. Right, I, I just, like, so sometimes you can discriminate. But, but and that's you, one of the things we talk about on the podcast. It's called a BFOQ, a bona fide occupational qualification, right? right. Which which means you don't have to hire somebody who's, who's like, if you're hiring a rabbi, like, you can discriminate, right? You, the rabbi should be Jewish, right? Like you can discriminate in certain <laughs> certain contexts like that, right? And so if you're hiring a party planner, it might be totally appropriate. I mean, as you a, could hire to a test priest how and they ask party. him to convert. But at a at a education company, I don't think that's probably right. anyway. So uh, she turned him down when he said, "Let's go party." And so then the company reversed this decision to hire her, and uh, they then reposted the position, conducted additional interviews, and hired a male candidate. Of course. Right. Because he partied with the chief executive. Uh, yeah. Maybe. Don't we I don't, don't know. Yeah. No. But so, so if so, that's the condition that you're imposing on the female candidate and not the male candidate or any candidate, it's a problem. Right. It's a, it's a big problem. It's a, it's a big sex discrimination. Right. Issue. And and so, I, you know, I chose those three cases to talk about to demonstrate how each of those protected classes can fall under any area, really, of, of potential discrimination. But hiring is one that gets less attention than other areas because you hear about big, you know, when we're going to talk about hostile work environment in a minute and sexual harassment. Well, it was it's the name of our podcast. God, Mark. But anyway. So, he always does this to me. Yeah. All right. Well, with that. Okay. The number one employment law risk, and of course, it's the hostile work environment. It is such a huge area of the law, it has its own podcast. It created the podcast and hired us. Yeah, totally. So 
this is a good segue because, you know, Mark just led us down the, the road about talking about protected classes and what it is in the workplace that is protected by the law. There's lots of things that are not. You can harass people based on their sports team allegiances. It's not illegal. It might make you a jerk, but it's not unlawful. Right. And, and none of this gets into like if it's assault or battery or well, no, those you, kinds you can't of right, like, like assault people over their right. Seahawks so let's fandom, let right. But, let's be clear about that. But it doesn't make it harassment legally under employment laws unless. It's related to one of those protected classes right. that we talked about. And we hear about sexual harassment almost all the time relative to the others, but you can harass based on race or age or any of those other protected Veteran classes. Veteran status, it happens. It happens. We've seen those cases. Now, the whole idea here behind why a hostile work environment is unlawful is that you are altering the terms and conditions of employment for an employee based on one, of their, one or more of their protected classes. So if coming to work and going through the work day is different for men than it is for women because you're allowing an environment where sexist jokes are made, you're running a big, huge risk. So the area of law has really developed a lot in about the last year, year and a half because we've all watched TV or we've all read a newspaper, or we've all gone on to Twitter and seen people talking about Me Too. Most of that having to do with sex discrimination. But this is like the Harvey Weinstein stuff, the sex harassment, the Kevin Spacey stuff, all that Me Too things that have been in the, in the press. Which isn't to minimize it just by using that language. It's, it, it, it is, is a very important issue of the yeah. law. And it is now, and this is why we're calling this the number one risk, it's really on the top of everybody's mind. Now, when somebody is experiencing this kind of treatment at work, they have an entire social movement out there to remind them that they have legal rights and they have ways to address those through the court system. And it's about freaking time. Yeah. We're all in favor of this. Here, though, is some of the employment law risk that really astounded me when I heard somebody mention it. The, the statute of limitations, the time period in which you can bring a lawsuit after something bad happens to you, for most of these hostile work environment type things is really short. It's about a year, depending on jurisdiction, but the longest is just about a year. It's a year in Washington. It's a year in Oregon. So, our, as lawyers, outlook on this has been for years like something bad happens, we tell our client to fix it, and then we just hold on for, you know, and watch the calendar. And after a year's gone by, it's like, whew, breathe a big sigh of relief. We dodged that bullet. They can't sue us now. And I was in a legal education seminar like this, but instead of like risk managers, it was a room full of lawyers. And they brought this guy from California who does sex harassment litigation on behalf of employees. And he comes in, he's got like this really shiny suit, and I'm sure he drove up in a Porsche. And, you know, he's just got that kind of like better call Saul vibe to him. And he's talking about cases that he has brought where the harassment was 10, 15 years ago. And somebody like raises their hand and goes, well, wait a minute. 
All that stuff's way beyond the statute of limitations. Why are you sending demand letters and threatening litigation over that old junk? And this guy, like, he leans back and he kind of laughs. And he goes, look, buddy, there's no statute of limitations on bad press. Because every one of his lawsuits, he would copy the Los Angeles Times and send them a copy of the complaint. And even though that lawsuit was going to get dismissed out of the courts in a flash because it was 15 years old and it's untimely, he doesn't care. His whole business model is based on extortion. He's going to threaten to take your dirty laundry public unless you pay up. So this whole idea that we can just you know, bide our time and wait is really starting to go through and into the past. That's just not how the plaintiff's lawyers are working it anymore. Now, most of us, we think about hostile work environment, we think of sex harassment. But that's not the only type. And Mark, Mark mentioned, you know, it could be about any protected class. And to really illustrate this, I wanted to tell you a story. And this, I have to give credit where credit's due. This came to us through a friend of ours named John Hyman. He's an employment law lawyer in Ohio and a great guy, great friend of the podcast. He, and he does a series called Worst Employer of the Year. Yeah, you and should then check he accept, it out. He, he nominates them, people vote, and then there's a whole to-do. And then he issues an award like you're the worst employer of the year. And this, this is not about the worst employer of the year because they did the right thing. But this, this is the story of Irving Cortez Hernandez. And he worked as an inside sales representative for Centennial, Puerto Rico. So Puerto Rico, we often forget, is in fact part of the United States. And Irving's job was to sell wireless and broadband telecommunication services to customers in one of its mall stores. During his employment, Irving got mad and he complained to HR that one of his coworkers, a woman named Lai Marie Torres, had been skimming commissions out of his sales. So HR did the right thing. They investigated. And they went and they talked to Lai Marie. And here's what Sometimes she said. Sometimes it's better not to complain. <laughs> Sometimes you should just shut yeah. the fork up. So Lai Marie is now talking to HR, and she tells HR the following. You know that buddy, Irving? Every now and then he starts speaking in a weird language. Like, blah, 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 blah. And I'd ask him what he was doing, and he'll tell me, oh, I'm praying to Satan. Or Satan tells me that I need to speak in tongues. <laughs> Is that? She goes on. <laughs> he would threaten her with satanic rituals, including during her pregnancy that he was going to use his satanic powers to cause her to miscarry. He told other employees that Satan protected him and that they shouldn't mess with him. He would threaten Torres with comments such as, Today, I feel like killing you. And other employees with, You know, today I just, I just want to kill somebody. Because Satan tells me to. Just, you know, this is what it's like when I record with Dennis pretty much all the time, except he's not my employer, so. Right, so you don't have a claim. And he would tell coworkers that when the devil is inside of him, there is no stopping him. So, Mark, what do you think Centennial Puerto Rico did? They gave him a raise. <laughs> they fired him. They fired him. Yeah. Good call, Centennial Puerto Rico. What do you think Irving did? He sued them. Of course, because Puerto Rico is America. And that is what we do in America. 
He sued him. And his claim? Mark? I'm going to guess religion discrimination. Exactly. You can't discriminate against anybody on the basis of religion, even if that religion is, as he called it, Catholic Satanism. Oh. He's not one of these, you know, weak Protestant Satanists. He's full-blown Catholic Satanist. Now, the court says, guess what? Irving's religion is, in fact, protected by the law. It, the law, Title VII in this case, of the um, Civil Rights Act of 1964, protects not only the traditional religion. I'm glad you remembered that. Yeah. It protects anything that is a sincerely held religious belief. And if Irving's Catholo-Satanism is a sincerely held religious belief, then Irving has a legit protected religion that is covered by federal anti-discrimination laws. And we can't fire him because he is a Catholo-Satanist. Think that's the end of the story? No. No. Jackass is not a protected class. Yeah. So Irving, even though you are a Catholo-Satanist and we respect your right to Catholo-Satanism, you are still a jackass. That means just because it is your religion to do so, you don't get to come to work and speak in tongues and threaten to cause people to miscarriage using satanic magic and brag about how the devil will allow you to kill all of your coworkers. So they dismissed Irving's pretty pitiful religious yeah, discrimination law. Kind of a lame lawsuit. claim, but it's but I haven't I haven't heard any Catholo-Satanist. Irving may be a religion of one, but that religion of one is still protected under Title VII. And here's the bind that lots of employers find themselves in. Irving here seems to pick on the pregnant woman. Guess what else is a protected class? Pregnancy. Pregnancy. Irving was causing the mother of all hostile work environments for his co-worker. She would have claims against the employer based on sex, pregnancy, Religion herself, because she doesn't share Irving's Catholo-Satanic beliefs. All of that stuff, because Irving is causing a problem for her. So if the employer had not done what it had done and fired Irving, not because of his religion, but because of his jackassery, it would be exposing themselves to some really significant potential risk. How much can, right, so it has to be a legitimate religious belief. Right. How much can the employer ask about that. You can say like, oh, wow, Irving, you're a Catholo-Satanist. That's a new one for me. Explain to me what that means for you. Now, if Irving responds by, you know, like, um, crap, um, devil, you know, it it sounds like Irving's just making that up on the spot. And so you're allowed to make a surface level inquiry. But if, if Irving responds with something that no matter how insane it may sound, sounds like Irving truly believes it. Sorry, I just patted my microphone. Um, Then that is a sincerely held religious belief and you're going to have to respect it. Unless respecting Irving's religious belief causes a hostile work environment for his coworker, which in Irving's case, it seems like it would. And stepping aside from the hostile work environment piece of this for just a second, if somebody does cite a religious belief, and it's actually a religion that you can research and find out more about, right? You can check if the day that the holiday that they want the day off for is actually 
the real day that that holiday is because oftentimes for certain religious beliefs those holidays tends to they tend to be on Monday and Friday right right so uh, it, you can validate and verify uh, and I think that's important because I think a lot of employers run scared about that and it's one of those areas get yeah. validate but then if it is legit and it's a reasonably it is amazing. Legitimate re- religious belief, then yes, you It is amazing how many people find Jesus and need to attend church on Sunday, but only during NFL season. Right. So you're allowed to look into that. Yeah. All so, right. so that's a that hostile work environment and a little a bit of religion. I think we are down to just a minute or two. But we have another slide, and it's a very oh, important slide. There's actually two. Oh. <laughs> so your objectives and takeaways. Now. You should all be able to identify the top five employment law risks, right? Okay. You can now mitigate those risks, right? Mission accomplished. We're getting nods. Just but so. the most important thing, Mark, <laughs> how do they subscribe and download the hostile work environment? So they can go wherever they listen to podcasts. That's pretty what much. that purple thing means. That's yeah. the international and, podcast. And just thing. type in hostile work environment and we'll be there. Ooh. Unless it's Spotify. We're not on Spotify, but no, pretty much anywhere else. Kind of suck, um, or you can go listen at our website, which is hwepodcast.com. We're actually just hitting our one-year anniversary this week, and we have about, this will be episode 52, I think. Or two, something so like that. Uh, if, if you enjoy this, please uh, go back and listen. There's many, 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 many hours of back catalog that you yeah. can Tell your friends. To. Tell yeah. your neighbors. Tell your kids. Um and then thank you for attending this section. And don't forget to um, shower us with your praise. Or just, or just about us. There's a lot of things about me you don't know anything about, Daddy. Things you wouldn't understand. Things you couldn't understand. Things you shouldn't understand.